Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. I'm not going to do my usual spiel that I say at the beginning of most episodes. I'm going to be talking a bit about something a bit more personal, and it relates to my puppy, Boris. Over the past month, I've noticed that his breathing has become a bit different. It's raspy, he's a bit out of breath more, and he tends to hack up his food a bit more while eating. So I took him to the vet and I found that he has a uh, condition called laryngeal paralysis, which is the first stage of a neurological disease that's similar to ALS in humans. But thankfully, that's slow moving and it's not really a concern until well down the road. But what is a concern now is the paralysis. And this is caused when abductor muscles in the larynx are not working properly and they're not expanding and opening for a deep breath. And so it's not a horrible condition initially, but... It does mean that generally he would have one to three years left, um, or in some cases, in more extreme cases, dogs only have a few months. So I'm looking to raise some money for his surgery. Uh, it costs $5,000, which is not cheap and well beyond what I can afford. So I've organized a GoFundMe. You don't have to, to donate. If you can even just share it, I would appreciate it. I just would like to get a few extra years with my dog. A bit of cool news. My other podcast, Canadian History X, is up for a Canada Podcasting Award in the category of Society and Culture. So to vote, you need to be a podcaster. So if you are a podcaster and you enjoy my shows, I would truly appreciate it if you could give me a vote. The link to vote will be in my show notes. And thanks again. It's time for a nostalgia episode, one of my favorite kinds of episodes, and we're looking at this wonderful Canadian show. It is one of the most famous television programs in Canadian history. Its original theme was called the Unofficial National Anthem of Canada. 
It is Hockey Night in Canada, and for almost 100 years, it has been an important and vital part of Canadian culture. The origin of Hockey Night in Canada dates back to February 8, 1929, when Norman Albert announced the third period of play at the Toronto Arena Gardens on CFCA. He would only broadcast the third period so that people would still go to the games. One month later, a young man named Foster Hewitt took over the broadcasting duties, and the program would be broadcast as General Motors Hockey Broadcast. This program began to broadcast Toronto Maple Leaf games out of Maple Leaf Gardens beginning on opening night for the new arena, November 12, 1931. These games were broadcast over the Canadian National Railway Network. It was on this first broadcast that Hewitt would use the line that became famous, He Shoots, He Scores. The first General Motors hockey broadcast would also reach an estimated 100,000 listeners. At the time, I was doing uh, work as a reporter, uh, as well as working on CFCA, which was a part-time job. And uh, I happened to be coming into the uh, Star office around 6 o'clock at night, and uh, I had finished what I thought my work for the day, and... Uh, Basil Lake, the radio editor of the Star, came up to me and said, you have another job tonight, you're going to broadcast the hockey game. Uh, apparently they had canvassed the entire sports department to get somebody to do it, and uh, for some reason or other no one was available, so I was the only one left, and uh, I didn't know enough to turn it down at the time, which I was rather fortunate I didn't. So I just went over there and, and did the game. And unfortunately for me, it went 30 minutes overtime. Within two years of launching, General Motors Hockey Broadcast was reaching 2.5 million listeners as stations began to be added. In a telephone survey done during a hockey broadcast on February 3, 1934, it found that 74% of all radio listeners tuned in to the hockey broadcast. Through the 1933-34 season, the show broadcast 51 shows consisting of 29 Maple Leaf games, 10 Canadian games, and 12 Maroon games. Beginning in 1934-35, General Motors Hockey Broadcast was replaced with the Imperial Oil Hockey Broadcast, beginning a relationship that would last for four decades. The Imperial Oil Hockey Broadcast would broadcast typically starting in the second period, once again, to not discourage people from going to the games. The North Bay Nugget would say of the Snyder family who listened to the broadcast, quote, Saturday Night Hockey broadcast always finds the two boys glued right tight to the Snyder family radio, and their dad says that when King Clancy goes tearing down the ice, there's just no holding back, end quote. Here goes Conacher back after his man. He upset him, and the puck goes into the corner. Moran's ended up with Day in the corner, and they both hit heavily, but no one was hurt. Puck is in Canadian territory. The Canadians attempting to attack. It was broken up at center ice, where the Leafs get it. Play is hovering around center ice, with neither team having any apparent edge. Gracie comes over this wing to check his man, and Leduc took a long shot. Play is again in Canadian territory, Joliet at center ice with Morenz. He goes by Primo at the defense, he shoots, and Lauren Chabot made a nice stop. Another speedy attack, this time on the Toronto Nets. It ended up in the corner, and the Leafs are away again, stopped at center. 
Here's a bird's eye view of the whole affair. And you see these two great teams battling it out for supremacy. Andy Blair just combed somebody's head there with his stick as he ran into the defense. Canadians take their turn at attacking and it ends up at, by day. A couple months ago, I did an episode on the birth of the CBC. Before there was the CBC, though, there was the Canadian Radio Broadcasting Commission, created by the Conservative government of R.B. Bennett. After his government lost the 1935 election, the Liberals and William Lyon Mackenzie King came to power. With the new government, there came a new broadcaster. When the CBC was created, the name of the program would change to Hockey Night in Canada, which was coined by Hewitt himself. This new version of the program was hosted by Gord Calder with play-by-play by Foster Hewitt and color commentary by Percy Lesseur as part of the program's Hot Stove League. Lesseur was a veteran hockey player having played for the Ottawa Senators and the Toronto Shamrocks as a goalie where he would begin to use a catcher's glove with extra padding to catch the puck and gauntlet gloves to protect his forearms. He would eventually be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1961. As the program expanded, Doug Smith and Elmer Ferguson handled the English broadcasts of the Maroons, while René Le Cavalier called the Canadians' games in French. When the Maroons folded in 1938, Smith and Ferguson began to broadcast the Canadians' games in English, opening up a wide new fan base for the club. Now we're going to jump ahead a little bit to 1952, when Hockey Night in Canada decided to make the jump to CBC Television. The Windsor Star reported, quote, Imperial Oil plans to sponsor television of NHL games in Toronto when the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation introduces TV in Canada next fall. The voice you will hear as commentator will be that of the same many of you have been listening to for years, Foster Hewitt, end quote. From this point until 1964, the telecast followed the lead of the radio broadcast, with broadcasts beginning at 9pm with games joined already in progress. The leading figures in hockey were not happy about television and had concerns that would have a negative impact on ticket sales. Clarence Campbell, the president of the NHL, was heavily against television broadcasts. He also felt that television could not capture the action of the ice properly. In 1949, he would say, quote, Fast end-to-end rushes, the skillful, attractive features of the game, are most difficult to portray because of TV's limited field of view. This is not a proper representation of the overall action, and certainly can be doing the game any good. Con Smythe, president of the Toronto Maple Leafs, felt the same, and after watching a special broadcast for CBC executives of the Memorial Cup game from Maple Leaf Gardens in April 1952 on television, he would say, quote, If that's what hockey looks like on television, then the people of Toronto won't be seeing it. End quote. Of course, Smythe was also a skilled businessman and he saw that television would grow the game and its audience, which meant more money for his team. He would say years later, quote, They used to say radio would kill us, but the novelty wore, and pretty soon radio was interesting thousands of people in hockey who had never given the game much thought. I'm sure it'll be the same with television. The fans will be sold on it because it is a great game, and they won't be satisfied to stay home, but will turn out to the rinks, end quote. The plan was for the 1952-53 season to be the first broadcast on television. Smythe asked $100 per game in advertising fees, which was incredibly low. Today, that would amount to only $1,000. Within a year, though, Hockey Night in Canada was proving to be a massive success, 
and advertising rights would cost $150,000 for a three-year contract. By the 1960s, the cost was $21,000 per game. Gerald Renaud and George Retzlaff were put in charge of overseeing the broadcasts. They tried several different methods of capturing the action before settling on a three-camera setup. One camera was able to capture the length of the ice, a second camera was a medium distance from the ice, and a third camera handled close-up shots of players and face-offs. This system was used on the first Hockey Night in Canada televised game and would become the standard from that point on. The first game to be broadcast on television was a game between the Montreal Canadiens and the defending champion Detroit Red Wings on October 11, 1952. The game ended in a 2-1 victory for Montreal in front of a hometown crowd at the Montreal Forum. Homestead a luck. Homestead. Un beau lancer bien bloqué. You know, uh, this game is going all across Canada on radio over most of Canada on television, how do you view that type of progress as what it means to our country? Well, I think it's a very great uh, thing to, to have it go right across the country because everybody knows of the National Hockey League. Everybody knows it's the best hockey in the world. And I think Canadians all over Canada should be able to see it. The English Canada debut for Hockey Night in Canada on television happened on November 1st, 1952, in a game between the Toronto Maple Leafs and Boston Bruins from Maple Leaf Gardens. The broadcast started one hour after the opening face-off. The only surviving footage from the first season of Hockey Night in Canada on television was the Leafs' home game on March 21, 1953, when they defeated the New York Rangers 5-0. Hot stove segments were introduced this season as well, which featured comedy segments as well as George Fair drawing caricatures and cartoons on a giant easel to illustrate commercials and hockey-related stories. The original hot stove was a holdover from radio, but by 1957, it was clear that it didn't work on television. That year, the hot stove was reworked with hosts Scott Young, Wes McKnight, and Tom Foley doing player interviews. Now, I won't say that Hockey Night in Canada caused an explosion in television buying in Canada, but I will say that it definitely played at least a part. By 1954, the number of televisions in Canadian homes was increasing by 50,000 per month, and 77% of those televisions tuned in to Hockey Night in Canada. In 1955, instant replay was pioneered on a Hockey Night broadcast, something that had never been seen before. And on November 22, 1957, a special Friday broadcast of Hockey Night in Canada occurred when the Soviet hockey team played at Maple Leaf Gardens against the Whitby Dunlops, who had won the Allen Cup that year. Both teams wore dark uniforms, so it was hard to know who was in control of the puck, but the Dunlops would win 7-2. On January 23, 1958, the first coast-to-coast -coast broadcast of Hockey Night in Canada occurred. The game was between the Montreal Canadiens and the New York Rangers. The Kingston Week Standard wrote, quote, Can you visualize an undertaking of this magnitude? Call for a hockey night across Canada and every centre having an ice surface and facilities for hockey and spectators participating. End quote. Later that year, on October 11th, Foster Hewitt turned the play-by-play -play reins over to his son, Bill. Foster would remain on as a colour commentator for three years, and then he went back to radio in 1961-62. He would return once more to do the play-by-play -play when Team Canada took on the Russians in the iconic Summit Series. The Vancouver Sun wrote about his retirement, quote, 
The voice had the bladed tension of a poised hockey stick. It sent Charlie Conacher and Joe Primo and Busher Jackson and Red Horner skating up and down the kids' imagination. They were the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Leafs were the kids' club. They were heroes moving in a golden haze that seemed to turn their sweaty uniforms pure white. One made them swoop vividly through the microphone into living rooms across the land. Foster Hewitt was the man behind the voice behind the mic. End quote. As for Bill Hewitt, he would be the voice of the Toronto Maple Leafs for the next 20 years until 1981, when a blood infection forced him to retire. Bill Hewitt had actually broadcast a game when he was only 8 years old in 1936 on what his father called Young Canada Night. This tradition would continue through the years, and at one point, Bill's son Bruce would broadcast a few minutes of the third period in games in the 1960s. When Bill broadcast his last game in 1981, that ended over 50 years of tradition of a Hewitt broadcasting a game in Canada. Bob Cole would take over the national broadcast from Toronto at that point. In 1964, lead times were moved up to 8.30 so that games could be joined in the first period. But it was not until 1968 that regular season games were shown in their entirety. In 1966, McLean's would write about hockey on television, quote, the higher you get in any hockey rink, the slower the game looks. So the excitement goes. Television, by cutting back and forth from long shot to close up, is the perfect compromise. You get to see everything, and with instant playback, you get to see some things twice. End quote. In 1967, all Hockey Night in Canada games began to be broadcast in color, starting in the playoffs of that year. You won't find many empty seats at a National Hockey League game. About the only available real estate is the penalty box at intermission. But the name of the game is hockey, and the team that puts the most pucks behind, around, past, or through a goalie comes up the winner. And you'll be a winner when you watch NHL hockey action live on this channel as CBC Television brings you Hockey Night in Canada. Watch the NHL action every Saturday night on CBC Television. For decades, Hockey Night in Canada was the most popular show on Canadian television, averaging over 2 million viewers of broadcast consistently. In 1969, 6.2 million people watched Boston take on Montreal in the Stanley Cup playoffs. All the way up until the 1990s, the show led the ratings with the 1994 Stanley Cup final between Vancouver and New York averaging 5 million viewers. After that, ratings began to slowly fall, but remained relatively steady. Viewership was always high when a Canadian team was in the playoffs, but fell drastically after the Canadian team was eliminated. In 2016, with no Canadian team in the playoffs, viewership was only 700,000 per game. When color came to Hockey Night in Canada, it changed the game itself. New lighting was added to the Montreal Forum and Maple Leaf Gardens so that the picture was enhanced and players had to adjust to the brighter arenas with some placing burned cork under their eyes to deal with the light reflecting off the ice. Then in 1968, the hockey theme was commissioned. Composed by Dolores Clamon and orchestrated by Jerry Toth, it would become an integral part of Hockey Night in Canada and Canada's second national anthem. The theme was a fixture of the show until 2008 when an agreement on the license renewal could not be reached. The CBC offered $1 million for perpetual rights to the theme, but Copyright Music was asking for $2.5 million to $3 million. 
The rights were bought by CTV, who used it in their TSN and RDS sports channels. A new theme would be created for Hockey Night in Canada, but it just wasn't the same. In 1974, Helen Hutchison became the first woman to appear on a Hockey Night in Canada broadcast when she conducted between-period interviews. And in 1976, Imperial Oil ended their 40 years of affiliation with Hockey Night in Canada. Molson's and Ford would remain as sponsors. The Montreal Gazette reported, quote, In a letter to employees this week, Imperial said it was ending its association with hockey telecasts in Canada at the end of the current season because changes in the composition of the audience which Imperial wants to reach, had diminished the effectiveness of advertising on hockey telecasts. End quote. The 1970s was also the era of Peter Puck, who was an animated puck that explained the rules of hockey and its history. Peter Puck here again. This time I'm going to tell you about playing the game. NHL hockey, that is, the world's fastest team sport. First, let's take a look at the rink. The game starts right here at the center face-off circle. Like this. The referee drops little old me onto the ice between the two opposing centers. Uh, hi guys. Now easy does it, fellas. This is only a demonstration, you know. Now for the offsides that stop the game. There's what we call offside at the blue line. The puck, uh, that's me, must always precede the attacking players across the opponent's blue line. I can be stick-handled across, passed across, or shot across. Just as long as it's me first. If both skates of an attacking player cross the blue line before I do, that's a no-no. The linesman will stop play, and a face-off will take place in neutral ice at the nearest red dot. The purpose of this rule is to prevent a player from being permanently stationed in front of the opponent's goal. Now we come to icing the puck. When a defensive player finds the going hot in his zone and decides to cool things off by shooting me all the way. Yikes! Back down the rink and across the opponent's goal line. Whoa! Icing is called as soon as I touch one of the opposing players other than their goalie. In this case, a face-off then takes place all the way back in the defensive player's deep face-off circle. It's time to play NHL hockey! Woo! Keep your eye on me! I'm pretty fast! Until 1970, only two Canadian teams were part of Hockey Night in Canada broadcasts, the Montreal Canadiens and the Toronto Maple Leafs. It was not until the Vancouver Canucks joined the league in 1970-71 that the venues for the program expanded to three. By the end of the 1981 season, Four more Canadian teams had joined the league, opening up venues for the program in Edmonton, Quebec City, Winnipeg, and Calgary. Throughout the 1980s, Edmonton and Calgary were often broadcast on Hockey Night in Canada as they were two of the best teams in the league, reaching the Stanley Cup Final every year from 1983 to 1990, winning the Stanley Cup all but two times in that stretch. The 1980s would be a transformative time for the program as competitors started to spring up in Canada, including on CTV. Another change happened when Wayne Gretzky was sold to the Los Angeles Kings, which resulted in Hockey Night in Canada featuring a doubleheader whenever Canadian teams played in Los Angeles. These games were typically joined in progress. The 1980s was also when hockey lost the man who brought the game to millions of Canadians. He was the voice of hockey for three generations of Canadians. Foster Hewitt, one of the great sportcasters, died on Sunday. He was buried today and hundreds of friends and fans were there. 
Michael McIver reports. In many ways, they were there not only to honor Foster Hewitt, but also to thank him one last time. Some of the hockey greats were there, many like Red Kelly, to thank him for first inspiring their dreams of greatness. He brought the game very vividly uh, right in your home. You, you could just see the, the player going out. You could just see him missing on his shot or, or just scoring. The sportscasters were there to thank him, too, for making hockey a national pastime. Uh, I've said so frequently, publicly and privately, that it had not been for Foster Hewitt, those of us who have eked out a pretty good way of life in hockey broadcasting may not have had the opportunity. And all of them, including fans, were there to thank him for the memories. On a Saturday night, and that was after my Saturday night bath, we were allowed to, watch, to listen to Foster describe the hockey game. And I'd go to bed that night with all sorts of dreams of players skating, and he shoots and he scores. Not we used to gather around the old pot stove uh, furnace in a grocery store out in near Caledon East at that time, and uh, every Saturday was, uh, it was Hockey Night in Canada with Foster Hewitt. Inside the church, his family, friends, and fans were told Foster Hewitt will be long remembered with fondness and gratitude. And if I can paint a homey view of heaven, and there are a lot of good hockey players up there, if they need a good sports caster to call the games, Foster's got the job. So maybe tonight if we go out and look at the stars and listen real carefully, we might hear a heavenly host and a voice floating on the crowd shouting, he shoots, he scores. Foster Hewitt, the original voice of hockey. Going in close, here's Wendell Wright and he shoots, he scores! Michael McIver, CBC News, Toronto. The 1980s was also when one of the most popular segments of Hockey Night in Canada debuted, Coach's Corner. Since the 1960s, Hockey Night in Canada had broadcast its hot stove segment and then had other segments airing through intermissions. Coach's Corner would make its debut in the 1980 Stanley Cup playoffs, airing with former Boston Bruin coach Don Cherry alone and giving his observations about the game. I was very interested in Wayne's uh, comments there about the hook and holding. He's just getting what Lafleur gets all the time. Dion gets all the time. Esposito gets. What are you supposed to do? Just let him roam out there? He's the leading scorer in that. I mean, uh, if you're going to score a lot of goals, you're going to get checked. That's, uh, you know, that's he, the way the, the game goes. There has to be a shadow on someone with that talent. And it's very, very easy because he's not strong. And when he gets on the road, you can put a big guy on him and you can tie him up all night. That's why uh, they can't do good on the road. They, what he needs is a good sniper, a 50, 60 goal scorer. And then they, then they got to concentrate on two of them. You watch the Oilers, you're a regular visitor to these parts. Yeah, I'm three games in a week. I like Mio. I really like him as a goaltender. I think they've got some life. I think they're going. I like, uh, they got some good pluggers. Looks like Sather's going out and get a team like the Bruins. Uh, Harry Neal did the same thing. And uh, they've got, so they got, they got something going. He would eventually be joined by Dave Hodge. And then in 1987, Alberta sports anchor Ron McLean was brought in to host a segment with Cherry the two would become one of the most famous tandems in Canadian history. Cherry became known not only for his outlandish outfits, but also for becoming a focus of controversy. Within his first year on Hockey Night in Canada, the CBC was looking to fire him. It was executive producer Ralph Mellenby who defended Cherry at the time, feeling that his approach connected well with blue-collar Canadians. Accusations of bigotry and racism would also follow Cherry for things he said on the show, particularly his criticisms of Swedish, Finnish, and Russian players, as well as French Canadians. 
1996, he would say of female reporters in the locker room, quote, If you want to be treated like men, then when you do get treated like men, you can't whine. If you can't stand the heat, then stay out of the dressing room. End quote. In 2015, his statement that the Inuit were savages and barbarians for eating seal was met with widespread criticism. He also faced legal action for calling three former NHL enforcers turncoats and hypocrites for coming out against fighting in hockey due to its link with brain injuries. He would later apologize for his comments. Even with the comments he would occasionally make, Cherry and Coach's Corner remained incredibly popular for decades, and in 2015, Coach's Corner received a star on Canada's Walk of Fame. I won't go into too much detail for the last 25 years of Hockey Night in Canada because, well, I just don't find it that interesting. But it was a major time of changes for Hockey Night in Canada. In 1995, Hockey Night in Canada became a doubleheader with an East Coast game broadcasting first, followed by a West Coast game. Cassie Campbell, an Olympic champion hockey player, would become the first female color commentator on a Hockey Night in Canada broadcast in 2006, subbing in for Harry Neal when he was snowed in at his home in Buffalo. On November 26, 2013, the NHL announced a 12-year deal with Rogers for Canadian television and digital rights to all broadcasts of NHL games. The CBC was still able to broadcast Hockey Night in Canada, but CBC would no longer be producing the show. The last CBC-produced episode of Hockey Night in Canada would air on June 13, 2014, when the Los Angeles Kings won the Stanley Cup. Ron McLean would state, quote, We close tonight with what I said in 87, my first time around at the helm of this broadcast. Here's to an endless summer, and here's to an early fall. We bid you a good hockey night for now. End quote. The broadcast ended with Queen's The Show Must Go On, which included highlights from six decades of NHL coverage. At this point, CBC paid no rights to Rogers or the NHL, but Rogers was responsible for advertising sales and production. Hockey Night in Canada was a large source of funds for the CBC, receiving half its total estimated advertising revenue from the broadcasts. As a result, many CBC staff attached to Hockey Night in Canada would lose their jobs. On November 11, 2019, Don Cherry would be let go from Hockey Night in Canada after comments he made on November 9th about immigrants not wearing poppies when he stated, quote, You people, you love our way of life. You love our milk and honey. At least you can pay a couple bucks for a poppy or something like that. End quote. The use of the term, you people, was seen as offensive and seen as an attack on people not born in Canada. Hockey Night in Canada continues to air today, although it's not quite the same program. Despite its changes and new ownership, the role the program had in Canadian culture is undeniable, and the hope is we can continue to watch Hockey Night in Canada for years to come. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Hockey Night in Canada. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo. 37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. And I also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons. And I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Sarah White, Tom McMillan, Mike Sullivan, Wendy Mills, Keelan Pringnitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard T., 
Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartheau, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nixon Ree, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, CBC, The Hockey News, History of Canadian Broadcasting, Wikipedia, Maclean's, Windsor Star, Montreal Gazette, The Ottawa Citizen, The Ottawa Journal, and The Montreal Star. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.